Turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We'll go a few more chapters into this gospel. I've enjoyed these studies in Matthew. Enjoy all of God's word, but especially when we get the gospels. They're not more inspired than the rest, but here you have the life of the Savior, the words of the Savior, and obviously our faith revolves around his person and work. There's a real joy in studying these Gospels together. So Matthew chapter 11, and I'll read verses 20 through 30. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 20 and through the end of the chapter. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen for God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his mercy, his gentleness, his care for his people exemplified in this passage. And yet his truth-telling, his firm words, the ideal prophet exemplified here as well. Thank you that Jesus is the perfect balance in our prophet, our priest, and our king. So may we adore and worship him tonight and be led by your word and spirit to follow him, to bow the knee more and more and to follow him as disciples. Give us wisdom to know how to do it in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll look for the next few nights at Matthew chapters 11 and 12. And if you're wondering why we skip to the end of Matthew 11, you may recall back in the Advent season, we looked at the first 19 verses of chapter 11 uh, as one of our Advent sermons. I'll just say a sentence or two about that and move on. A little too close in proximity to re-preach that uh, passage this evening. But we will look at all of 11 and 12, or 11 and 12 as a whole, uh, over the next few nights. And here's what you'll find. These two chapters, not as tightly constructed as, say, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, 
or chapters 8 and 9, where you can just put that word authority over those two chapters, Jesus' authoritative deeds there in action. But they do have a loose connection. You, you, you don't get the impression that Matthew got here and said, all right, I've got some material here. I've got to throw this in somewhere. Well, chapters 11 and 12 uh, will do. No, they do funnel into chapter 13. And chapter 13 is your next big discourse, this long saying of Jesus. Matthew is organized around five discourses of Jesus. So where you might read John and, and you might get one every other chapter or so, Matthew has a select number of long discourses of Jesus. We just finished the one in chapter 10. Chapter 13 is the next. And if you've read chapter 13 before, you may think of that as the chapter that has the different parables of the kingdom. Parable of the sower, parable of the wheat and tares, parable of the net, etc., the mustard seed, and on and on. And what Jesus is doing in that chapter is using his parables to explain the different responses to his message. Why some respond positively, why some respond negatively, and what that means when it comes to God's kingdom and the success of his kingdom and the truth of his kingdom. Chapter 13 is really the explanation chapter of why things are going the way they are. Therefore, chapters 11 and 12 provide examples. Different people who respond in different ways. So maybe sometimes you explain something and then give examples. Well, it's the opposite. We'll get our examples first of different responses to Jesus the Messiah. And then in chapter 13, we'll get the explanation. And we'll see in these two chapters that some responses are positive, some responses are negative, some are, are somewhat confused. John the Baptist at the beginning of this chapter, we'll even see those tonight. But one last thing, not only do you just have various responses, perhaps what holds the two chapters together is they track increasing hostility towards Jesus. So as the two chapters progress, you see the people's growing doubts, growing rejection, even over hostility towards the Savior at different times. Points until we come to chapter 13. But let's that sound too negative. Nothing wrong if, if that's the picture the Bible gives us of rejection. That's the picture the Bible gives us. But lest we think that's overly negative, each chapter still ends with those who respond well to Jesus. Just in the midst of the rejection, a reminder of the magnificent relationships which Christ does enter into, which are possible and which God, by his grace, sovereignly and powerfully brings about for his people. So let's jump into these two chapters tonight. We'll just look at the end of chapter 11 tonight, and they'll present us with different responses to Jesus. And so here they are, three responses uh, this evening. The first is John the Baptist, who gives an overall positive response. Now, as I said, just preached this passage only a few months ago. So here's just the very basic summary. And many of you are probably familiar with John the Baptist and his story. What's going on here in this passage is John has been imprisoned. 
He anticipated the coming of the Messiah. He announced that the kingdom of God was near this great era, the reign of God that's coming upon us. Here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's right at your doorstep, Israel. So you should repent. You should accept the message of Jesus. You should enter the kingdom. You should strive to enter the kingdom through loyalty to him. That's the message John announced. But when he got thrown in prison, he started to experience some doubts. He saw what Jesus was bringing about. He saw what Jesus was at least supposed to bring about by what he preached. But he looked at what he was experiencing and the two did not line up. Where was this power that was supposed to happen? Well, that's where Jesus comes and reassures him. Hey, the lame walk, the death here. John, the prophecies are being fulfilled. And you should maintain your faith. There's going to be an already and not yet aspect. The kingdom's breaking through. Look at these healings. But the total overthrow? Well, you're going to have to wait patiently, long for that. That will come in years to come. So, John, you just be patient. You trust me. You persevere. And then, lest we might think, oh, John, he waffled, he doubted, you can't trust him. Jesus turns to the crowds and says, look, this guy, John, he's greater than all the prophets. And what he told you about the kingdom is true. So you strive to enter it as well. He commends to them, John, and he warns his hearers, don't make the wrong response like the religious leaders are doing. Imitate John's example and enter the kingdom. And if you do, you'll be even greater than him. So there's an overall positive response. Now as we come into the verses we read tonight, in the second place, we see a negative response from prominent towns. And this is in verses 20 through 24. Jesus concludes his words to John the Baptist with that parable about the children who played the pipe and people didn't dance, who sang the dirge and people didn't mourn. In other words, Jesus says there are many out there who are making the wrong response. They refuse to respond to John. Now they refuse to respond to Jesus. And that just brings him right into these words in verses 20 through 24, where he pronounces woes. On towns that refuse to repent. You see, uncertainty is one thing. You know, wavering in your faith, doubting in your faith, going through some struggles there. That's one thing. Jesus has gentle words for John. You know, he challenges him a little bit with the evidence. But Jesus has gentle words for John. That's different. Wavering in your faith is very different from being unresponsive. Or making a negative response, out and out rejection. That is far more serious. And the serious magnitude of that we see here in these words. Keep in mind what we just saw in chapter 10, where Jesus sent out the disciples. He warned them, you might be persecuted. You might find in a town people that don't want to receive you. So you shake the dust off your feet and you move on. Hey, Jesus warned them that's going to happen. And now here we go. Here are some examples of towns that have done just that thing. They are already showing their hot, their hostility towards Jesus. And so he mentions three towns in these verses. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. It may not be towns we know a lot about personally, but they were some of the most prominent towns of the area. So your larger areas here, north of the lake, uh, there the sea where Jesus was ministering in 
the northern kingdom there, the Sea of Galilee. Most of his early ministry is focused there in the north. Well, well, this is where he's concentrated his activity. These are the biggest towns. But as we see here in verse 20, they were those who did not repent. And if you think about it, that was just the number one thing they had to do, the basic requirement. Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus says, all right, the power of God is here. The reign of God is here. It's, it's in your midst, but that demands a change on your part. What did we talk about this morning from Romans 2? Israel failing to live up to their vocation. Israel failing to keep their own law. God said, you'll be my kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. They weren't doing that. And so God in his grace appears. He says, right, the the reign of God is here for the people of God. But you have to become the people of God again. You have to repent. You have to return. You need to go through the waters of the Jordan again. That's why John baptized there to say, let's just start this whole thing over of being my people. And so he came in grace. He came in mercy. But life in those towns went on as if nothing had changed. They refused to repent. Could have been they just loved their sin. They loved darkness rather than light. Could have been they didn't like Jesus' message. They liked the Pharisees' message more. Or the Sadducees' message more. Or all of the above. But the end result is they didn't give loyalty to King Jesus. And so he pronounces woe to you in verse 21. And that's a formula right out of the Old Testament. The prophets use it a lot, especially Isaiah, I think. It basically says, all right, you people that I'm pronouncing this on, your actions, your attitudes, they've aligned you against God and his purposes. If lines are being drawn in the sand, you're on the wrong line when it comes to what God is like and what God wants. In fact, you find over in Luke 6, so you're familiar with the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Blessed are those who... Well, in Luke 6, you have the Beatitudes, but then you actually have a corresponding set of woes. So, blessed are those who do this, but woe to those who do this. Same language here. Matthew 23, if you're familiar with that, the denunciation of the religious leaders. Woe to you. Same language here. Just folks that won't respond to Jesus' message are being placed in a very perilous position. And it says here in verse 20, this is where most of his miracles had been performed. So you think about it, John is in prison, he doubts. And what does Jesus say? Hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's the proof. You can trust the message. It's reliable. Well, these people saw it. So the deeds that reassured John, the truth that made John firm in his faith amidst wavering, it should have convinced these towns as well. But it didn't. They rejected the truth. And this is where Jesus enters into just an amazing comparison that, that, that we should strive to, to grasp the significance of. He says, look, if I had done, so take the miracles I did to you, Jewish towns. If I had done those miracles in Tyre and Sidon, and he's going back in time here to the time of the prophets, Tyre and Sidon are traditional enemies of Israel. So Isaiah denounces them. Ezekiel denounces them. Even says, you know, behind your actions, king of Tyre, is the working of Satan. So wicked cities, proud cities, oppressive cities that God judged because they came against Israel. 
Jesus says, if I had gone to those cities and done these miracles, they would have repented. They're kind of like Nineveh. When Jonah went to that wicked city and thought, no one here is going to repent. I don't want them to hear this good news. And they did repent. Jesus is saying, listen, basically the same situation would have happened had I gone to Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented like Nineveh did. But since you haven't repented, you got a better message than they got. Therefore, he says in verse 22, it will be more tolerable, excuse me, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. You, Israelite towns, that got a clearer message, not more true, but clearer, that saw more, because you failed to repent, you will receive a more severe judgment. And this is something consistent with what Jesus says all throughout Matthew's gospel. He said it back in Matthew 10, verse 15. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. It's coming also at the end of Matthew 12. <clears throat> The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus gives examples of notoriously wicked cities. And either says, look, some of them did repent. Nineveh, Jonah went, they repented. Or he gives notoriously wicked cities that were judged, Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, but says, had I gone there, they would have repented. Now you think of those cities, and you think especially of Sodom and Gomorrah and what they're known for and how we usually think of those sins and whether or not we think people can be saved from those situations. And it's just so severe, and we put it in a very severe category. But listen to what Jesus says. These religious towns that saw him and would not repent of their own works righteousness and their own pride are in worse shape than those notoriously wicked cities. So I try not to overcook these grits, but when I constantly say, hey, let's examine ourselves first. Let's think of our own sins first before we worry about the sins out there. I'm not trying to overdo that message. Jesus constantly points us in that direction. As he did in Matthew 7, where he says, Don't worry about the splinter in your brother's eye. See the beam in your own eye. People of God, known by the marks of God, let us consider our own response to the Savior, knowing that those who don't know him through ignorance and sin may be in a better position to hear the words of the Savior than those who are stiff-arming him for various reasons. So it's a good focus to keep Always examine ourselves first and keep the focus there. Jesus goes on in verses 23 and 24 and says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For the same reason, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Let's think through what Jesus says there. Again, Capernaum. One of the centers of Jesus' early activity, so they received much light, much uh, witness to who 
Jesus is. He says, will you be lifted up to the heavens? And when he uses that language, he's probably echoing Isaiah 14, where Isaiah denounces the king of Babylon, who lifted himself up by pride. And and some even see there in Isaiah 14 a a shadowy reference to the fall of Satan. Very very possible that what's ultimately driving uh, the king of Babylon, pride like what the devil experienced when he fell from grace. It's just a common example here of pride going before the fall. And so Jesus says, are you going to be lifted up like Capernaum? Are you going to be lifted up like the king of Babylon was, like the devil himself was? No, you will be cast down to Hades, the realm of the dead. A little different word here from Gehenna, the word we looked at in the last sermon, the place of torment. Here, just the idea is you're you're going to be cast down to death, cast down to destruction. But not only does Jesus introduce the idea of, hey, if I had done my miracles there in Sodom, they would have repented. And since you didn't repent, you're going to be judged. Not only does he make that comparison, but I do want us to notice in verse 24 that Jesus also implies it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Here Jesus introduces the idea, or the principle at least, of degrees of punishment. That some are punished more severely because of the light they had received and the amount of sin they have accumulated. Jesus states that on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for Sodom than for you. Now, what Jesus does not say is on the day of judgment, Sodom will escape. He doesn't say that. He says it will be more bearable for them than for you. The punishment they receive will not be to the same degree as the one you receive. And that appears to be a very valid scriptural principle. It's stated here. It's also stated in Luke 12. So listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment, will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So there's the idea. Who knew their master's will? They receive a more severe punishment. Now the one who doesn't know the will still receives a punishment. So I think it, we have to maintain what Jesus is saying there. I, I personally wouldn't want to receive any of these punishments. Want to be in the grace of God and found accepted by Him on the last day as we already are by grace. But nonetheless, Jesus does not allow for the idea of ignorance being an excuse. But He does say that the one who is ignorant receives fewer blows. So this is stated in Scripture and it is also consistent with the principle of a judgment according to works. What we looked at a few weeks ago in Romans 2. The one who does the law will be justified. God will repay to each person what they have done. Sin eliminates the possibility that you could earn your salvation. But the idea that judgment and according to works does allow for the idea that there would be varying degrees of punishment. And this is where I was going just a minute ago when I was saying... 
Think of how we think about the sin of Sodom and other sins connected with judgment and how severely we tend to think of them. Jesus says, more bearable for them than for these religious cities. So let us just think about our response to Jesus and how well we hear his words. So these cities gave a negative response. Now let's look at the other group in this chapter, the third and final group, the little children or the little ones who are graced. It's not just that they make a positive response, but as Jesus will say in verses 25 through 27, they make a positive response because of the grace of God. They respond well to Jesus, and now Jesus says, let me explain to you deep down why they make this good response. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So all these truths, all these things that one needs to know, all the things that might lead in the end uh, to repentance and salvation, Jesus says, now, Lord, I want to I praise you because you hid them from the wise and you revealed them to little children. Jesus grounds our salvation, our right response in the sovereign, gracious will of God. That we see the truth and embrace the truth because Jesus is pleased to reveal it to us. He says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. So those who consider themselves wise, those who think they have learned the truth, but they've done it in accordance with human cleverness, not what God has revealed. Well, even the best of human insight. If it's relying on its own resources, it can't break through to the divine wisdom. And instead, God reveals his truth to little children. And this is a phrase that Jesus uses in the gospel simply to refer to believers. Those who receive the gospel in simple faith. Later in Matthew 18, the disciples will ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and he calls the little child to them and says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that position of dependence. No power that children had in that day and not that much in our own day as well. And Jesus says, that's the attitude that you must have in order to enter the kingdom. That's the attitude that characterizes those who enter the kingdom. And if you have that attitude, it is because God gave it to you. He sovereignly opened your eyes. He graciously changed your heart so that you would not only hear these truths, but make the right response. And that's something we should give thanks to God for. Now, I just want to say two more, a few notes on the theology here. I do want you to notice the two responses that we've seen so far in this chapter are not parallel. So, in other words, why are the cities condemned? Because they refused to respond 
They made the wrong choice. They would not listen to Jesus, as he'll say, I think, in Matthew 23. How often would I have gathered you? You would not come. So the blame is placed on them for refusing to listen. But why does Jesus commend those who make the right response? They receive a divine gift. They receive the grace of God. So they're not parallel. On the one hand, the Bible is comfortable giving to humans responsibility for bad decisions. And on the other hand, the Bible will always give God the exclusive credit for making the right decision when it comes to following Jesus. And some might come to this passage and say, okay, well, the reason it's revealed to the little children is they're open to it. They're teachable. They're willing to receive it. I saw that in some of the study for this passage. This just doesn't say that. Nowhere does Jesus say, okay, because you have the right attitude, God reveals these things to you. No, he reveals it to you because as verse 26 says, yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. So we rest in the wisdom of God. We rejoice in his grace. God does things this way because it puts the pretentious, it puts the proud in their place. And it forces us to be dependent on our Father, grateful to our Father, and trusting of our Heavenly Father. And then He receives the glory, because He alone is the Creator. And, as a benefit, we as humans, as creatures, we really are better off when we turn out from our inward focus and behold the one true and living God, the one true object of beauty. We become better for it as well. And so that's why God does things this way. And as verse 27 says, we might ask, well, how can Jesus be so you know, confident in the pronouncements of the previous verses? Because he knows the Father, he reveals the Father, he does the will of the Father, he is one with the Father. That is why Jesus does what he does he carries out the Father's will. Because we might say, yeah, well, but Jesus, he, he does what he does because he knows what's going to happen. He, he can look down the corridor of time and know what will happen. He says, if I had gone to Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. If I had gone to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. But he didn't go there, did he? He knows it's possible. But it isn't by looking down the corridor of time and seeing what would happen that he makes a decision. He makes a decision because this is what the Father ordains, and this is what the Son is pleased to do, and the result is the gracious revelation of the Father through the Son to his people. And so the chapter closes then with this invitation, verses 28 to 30, and these are just some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. It's just, this is just one of those chapters that just hits all the bases. It gets all the balance right. It may not resolve all the tension, but it hits all the bases. Because you may say, okay, well, they made the wrong response, but we only make the right response because of God's grace. So, so God is stiff-arming sinners? No. He says here at the end, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that, that picture of, of Jesus summoning the people 
to himself. That, that's an image that readers of the Old Testament would have been very familiar with. You have in Proverbs 1 this picture of wisdom saying, hey, come and listen to me. Come and learn of my ways. You have this picture in Proverbs 8 where God says, when I made the world, I had wisdom with me. And through wisdom, I make myself known to the world. So come and learn of wisdom. Jesus is basically taking on that figure of wisdom who is with God in the beginning. His partner in creation, inviting people to come and taste that the Lord is good. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. What are those burdens? It might be the burden of legalism. Think of Matthew 23. They, they bind you with heavy burdens. Do this, don't do that. But it's not God's truth. Uh, it could be when Jesus says that you're burdened. That could be a symbol of oppression. You think of the Romans ruling over them. The heavy yoke that Rome has put on them. It could even just be a reference to life's difficulties in general. You ever just feel burdened and weary? Maybe things aren't going well at work, stress at home, stress in your family. Maybe you dropped the ball, you fumbled it, you feel like I can't ever do good at this life God's given me to lead. And you're just burdened. You're just weary. Jesus says, come to me when you're burdened and weary and I will give you rest. I love that the Savior offers rest. He doesn't say, yeah, you're right, you fumbled it, haven't you read my expectations? Do better, try harder. No, he says, you come. If you're burdened and weary, you come, and I will give you rest. And I'll take the heavy yoke off of you that others have put on you, that maybe you've put on yourself, and I'll give you my yoke. And why do you wear a yoke? Well, it's something you put on to help you do work. It makes the work easier. Now, Grant you, there's still work to do. And you happily take the yoke off when the work is done. Well, Jesus says, you, you put my yoke on you. And whereas normally you put a yoke on in order to work, Jesus says, if you put my yoke on, you won't find work, you'll find rest. Now, it won't be freedom, you know, in the sense that God says, oh, you're burdened because, you know, I have rules for how creation should work. And I, and I give my commands. Oh, quit worrying about those. That's not what God says. He says, you come, you put my yoke on and you'll learn to live as I require, but you'll find that it's restful. You'll find that it's good. It won't be a doing away of God's commands. Matthew 5 through 7 is full of commands, but there's a new relationship with God. He's the Father. There's a new power for living. We have the Spirit and the internal change He brings about and the true, pure commandments of God freed from all those man-made interpretations and burdens. Well, you'll find that a delight. And you'll find power for living there. And you'll want to sit under that kind of yoke because it's where you'll find rest. You'll be like Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus with the other disciples and learned from him. It's a good yoke because Jesus gives it. And he says you'll find rest for your soul. So your, your very deepest level, you will find this rest. So Jesus, who is gentle and humble, he has full authority. He just got done pronouncing some serious woes 
on unrepentant cities, but here he is gentle and gracious. As Matthew will tell us in the next chapter, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. He is good, his commands are good, and the way he deals with us is good. So what do you think about this Satan? What kind of response are you making towards him in your life right now? Don't resist him. Don't resist his words. Judgment is severe. But when we come to him, we find rest and delight. And what about your yoke? What kind of yoke are you carrying around? What kind of burden are you bearing? Are you laboring under someone else's expectations? Someone else's burden for you? Someone else's rules? Well, you'll find Jesus' yoke You'll find Jesus' relationship to be good. And again, it'll plug you into the life of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not as if there's nothing to do, but you'll find rest there. So whatever the burden may be, whatever the struggle may be, don't run from it, but come and find rest in the Savior. Let's give thanks as we close. Father in heaven, we are again. So grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that here at Roebuck, these folks as individuals or in their family, in their lives, and as a congregation, I pray that we all would know the rest of the Savior. Lord, keep us pleased from the lack of repentance that puts our souls in danger. Thank you for graciously revealing to us the Father. Please keep doing it. And so may we come then and find rest in the Savior. Bring forth much fruit from your word. And thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.